Good afternoon. Uh, this afternoon I'd like to talk about how our loving-kindness practice, our metta practice, uh, transforms us. The various ways that the process meets all those different uh, parts of ourselves and um, takes us towards that greater radiance of the heart that we've been speaking about. I want to start just by saying a few words about what we've been calling the spirit of metta. And uh, the spirit of this practice. And first of all, I wanted to say something that hasn't been explicit, but I think is implicit in what we've been exploring so far, which is that uh, our practice is a kind of intention practice. We are continually inclining our being towards that open heart. And it's important really to have that sense of intention as opposed to production. This is not a production practice. We are not sitting here saying, I am not saying, I, Donald, will produce a radiant, loving heart right now through this practice. It's rather that we incline in that way by doing these very time-tested methods, using these methods. We practice and then we let things be as they are. We come back, we say the phrases again. It's like that line from one of uh, T.S. Eliot's poems where he says, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Our practice is very much like that. And so that's, that's a kind of a combination of both effort and letting go in the very act of practice. The reason that we're doing this and that it works, that, that I like to sometimes think of metta practice as a kind of knocking on the door of the heart. Hello, anyone there? <laughs> Come out, let's play. <laughs> Uh, is that we take as a presumption, and this is, I think, really the finding, we might say, of our teachers, of the tradition of practice, that our most deep nature is radiant, is luminous, it's full of love. And we practice, and that ultimately works, I believe, because we find that that is the case. So we keep knocking, and we're, we're not having to produce uh, that radiant nature because it's more, I think as we know, it's more a, a kind of uncovering of that nature and opening up to that nature. You know, one metaphor that's often used is that our hearts are like the sun, and sometimes it's uh, the moon, and sometimes they're clouds. Often they're clouds. Many of us live with clouds all around. <laughs> but that, that doesn't mean that the sun's not there. And so the, the practice is a kind of thinning 
of the clouds, we might say, to use that metaphor. In a number of passages from the Buddha, it's said that our uh, deep nature has the aspect of what's called the brightly shining quality of mind and heart, which is linked with metta, a quality of luminosity. And the intention to open to that warmth and kindness of metta is central to so many areas of practice. As as Sylvia was suggesting, there are these many ways that metta gets expressed in uh, through metta practice, through a, qu- a quality of effort, gets expressed in terms of wisdom in certain ways. And I was also thinking that there are these many ways, some of which we're not exploring here, that metta gets expressed. It gets expressed in our speech, where the guidelines for wise and compassionate speech have as one of the guidelines to, to speak out of that heart of metta. So it's something that we might uh, actually do continually when we're, when we're in speaking mode. Uh, 19th century Tibetan teacher Pachal Rinpoche says, everything you say with your mouth or do with your hands, instead of being harmful to others, should be straightforward and kind. Shanti Deva. Uh, who wrote the great text, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, in in the 8th century. He said, whenever catching sight of others, look on them with an open, loving heart. As a practice. You know, and I was also reflecting a lot the last few days um, on the life of Martin Luther King, because I'm very cognizant, uh, having been here Um, in January, probably most of the last 10 years, that almost always our retreat uh, falls in the period of January that holds uh, King's birthday and and often the uh, celebration, which is not always the same day. And so this year, Saturday, uh, January 15th is his birthday. So I was also reflecting on the centrality of um, uh, love, what, what, what King called love and in in more in the Christian tradition for his life. And I wanted to bring in some of his words um, during the talk, partly to honor him. Um, there's, a, there's a powerful line which I heard from um, Cornell West, who's a sort of a philosopher and social commentator, he said, the public face of love is justice. The public face of love is justice. And there's a powerful way that that was really what King was expressing. And he talked explicitly uh, about love uh, often in, in his, his work. Uh, he talked he distinguished the kind of love he was interested in, uh, which, which he linked with the Greek word agape, some of you know, the, the sense of unconditional love. He distinguished those from other times, types of love. And he said, agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill to all men. 
It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And one rises to the point of loving the person who does an evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. I'm very happy that he didn't say, like your enemies, because it's pretty difficult to like some people. (laughs) And he went on in that passage. I thought, actually, he talked about not liking people so much. You try to bomb your house and threaten your kids and, you know, obstruct the rights of some people and so forth. So, um, so that's, that's very much the spirit of metta. And I wanted to read one other passage from, from a little different context, which is really the spirit of metta, because I think as both Sylvia and Larry were suggesting, we often do find the spirit of metta in difficult situations, that it comes out. I've known when I've been in crises often, that spirit of metta comes out. You know, I uh, read uh, from a book uh, by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, which chronicles how people essentially in disasters, natural disasters, respond almost typically with altruism and goodwill, contrary to a lot of popular conceptions. Last August, um, a dear friend of mine named Tom Potterfield died. He was a, a student and he um, became the president of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And he, he wrote um, during the period of his illness and he died young, he died at 55 of, of cancer. And I wanted to read something that he wrote which really, again, shows that very ordinary and simple spirit of metta that that is called forth sometimes by difficult circumstances. Um, And Sylvia Sylvia knew Tom also. Um, This is what he wrote in March. So this this would be about uh, five months before he died. The past few weeks have been tough. The chemo treatments take a lot of willpower to navigate. In addition to knocking me down physically, they also bring on an emotional and spiritual darkness that drags me to the borderlands, a dry, barren, lonely place of scarred memories, dead tiredness, and frayed hopes. It takes all my strength to grind it through and not give in to the temptation to give up, which gets very strong after five or so days of heavy chemo side effects. My work is always a great help with this by dragging me out of my head to focus on something far more important than me. I'm so grateful for that aspect of my life. Also, I have found that almost every time something wonderful comes along to restore hope. Sometimes it is just uh, his wife Donna's smile or his daughter Katie's loving presence. Sometimes it's a beautiful vista with some happy cows or horses. (laughs) It could be one of my canine buds giving an especially sweet and enthusiastic greeting or a student doing well and having a great experience at the school. And sometimes it is something more dramatic and amazing. This past weekend, I had a big problem. I have a a pick line, a small tube that is threaded through a vein from my arm across my chest to my heart. It 
prevents damage to my veins from the chemo infusions. Sounds creepier than it really is. On Sunday evening, the damn thing broke and I had to go into the emergency room. Of course, the specialist in such things wasn't on duty and I had to wait in the ER until Monday morning. I was pretty miserable. It was yet another reminder of how far from normal my life is, how much this disease has overtaken my life and limited it. I was feeling down and sorry for myself. I felt spiritually dry, had for some time. I prayed for some lightness and joy to come to me and to feel reconnected to my spiritual life. During the night in the ER, a janitorial staffer came into my room to remove the trash uh, can. I said hello and our eyes connected for just a fraction of a second. Jose left the room and came back with two heated blankets and proceeded to tuck me in very gently and carefully. He then told Donna and me about his own struggles and how people praying for him saved his life. We talked about faith and hope and then he went on his way. A brief and lovely moment that lifted my spirits and made me thankful. There are amazing people everywhere and sometimes they rise up to give you a hand when you need the most. It's good to try to be a person like that for others. So that's really what we're doing here. We're, we're um, cultivating that moment-to-moment -moment kindness which um, can manifest in very ordinary ways and then sometimes dramatic ways that really have big impact on people. You know, and we're, we're in training. We're in training to do that and I was, I was, I was reflecting that you know, all, all, all of what I've said so far might be, for me it's inspiring, I hope it is for you. And you know, the opening to our radiant hearts and the depths of our being and connecting with deep teachings from the Buddha and King and so forth. And I was just reflecting that many of us may have been very excited to come on the retreat. Some people came right at the last moment from the waiting list. And we come here really excited. And then all day long, it's the phrases, <laughs> you know. Sometimes, sometimes there can feel to be a gap right between the, <laughs> the beautiful vision and what we're actually doing moment to moment. So, um, so it's helpful to, to reflect that we're actually in training. And training is, uh, has its ups and downs. But it does work. And I want to talk about some of the ways that it works. I was thinking of a few ways that are uh, that the meta practice uh, brings us towards that radiant heart, that it, it really works. One of them is that we learn better, uh, in, in language I like, we learn better how to lead with the hearts, with our hearts. Uh, we also deepen in concentration. We go through a fairly interesting and sometimes intense purification process. And we also, I think, connect the different parts of ourselves. You know, as Larry was suggesting, we bring all parts of ourselves here. And we, in our metta practice, ultimately, I think, mature metta, as we've been suggesting, is connected with wisdom, is connected with mindfulness, is connected with all the parts of ourselves. So those are the areas I want to explore. And through, in the process of doing that, also give some 
uh, very concrete suggestions for how to practice with particular uh, challenges that come up in some of those areas. So first, we, we learn in our meta practice uh, to lead with our hearts. And I use that to mean that our hearts are there, in a way, our hearts are there to meet the moment, to meet the situation. And for many of us, we've led with other parts of our being. You know, I think some of us may lead with our minds. Some of us may lead with our bodies. And then, of course, it's a question of what aspect of our minds or hearts or bodies do we lead with? (laughs) Do we lead with, do I lead with my wounded heart of the four-year-old? Right? Many of us do that at times. But we, you know, for myself, I I was reflecting, um, my conditioning was to learn, I think, to lead with aspects of my mind. You know, um, coming of age as a man in the second half of the 20th century, I was not encouraged to lead with my heart. (laughs) Maybe understatement, you know. um, And I think I probably led with my analytic mind, my problem-solving capability, and at certain periods, my snide comments. (laughs) Some of you may relate to this. but I, I knew that the, my heart was there. You know, I knew that from um, crying at driver ed movies. <laughs> Not everyone did, you know. <laughs> and I also was reflecting on, um, you know, I, I would sometimes cry at movies. I remember particularly, uh, I think it was my first year in college or maybe my second year, you know, as. 18 or 19, and I went to see, I think it was uh, James Dean, uh, the film with him, Rebel Without a Cause. I won't ask for hands as to who's seen it, but but it was um, was very moving. And I I cried during the film at the end, and I I really remember that some of the, um, you know, my young woman classmates were really impressed that I was crying. (laughs) That was meaningful to me. And I didn't know about meta at the time. If, if I did, I would have probably enlisted for meta practice for unwholesome reasons. <laughs> so in any case, we, we, learn, we learn in these ways to lead with our hearts. And for me, it's, it's, meta practice has been a big part of the training. It really, you know, a lot of other things help to lead with the heart, but meta practice is wonderful. Uh, partly because it's a moment-to-moment practice, and we can bring it very easily into our daily lives. We can have it there in different ways, not necessarily always saying the phrases, but having that quality of the heart be there. And just you know, in the way that, I think it was uh, Sylvia once said that uh, metta practice, in one perspective, is just checking in and saying, where's my heart right now? It's another way to, to talk about that. And so we train in here very much in leading with the heart. And I was thinking it also has almost like a devotional quality. You know, we're devoted to bringing the heart out. And we do it moment by moment. And it can, of course, sometimes feel challenging or dry, but we, we really commit to that kind of uh, continual 
um, intention and inclination. And we, you know, as we learn more to lead with our hearts, it's more there in our lives. It's more there at certain moments. You probably find from just from doing the practice these two days here, maybe there've been some difficulties come up. And I think I've heard this. I've actually heard this from a few people in our practice discussions that people were saying a certain voice comes up, maybe a self-critical voice that at home might have taken me away for a while. And here in the context of training and leading with the heart, I see it and I'm not caught in the same way. You know, and we can use metta for those difficult moments at home when maybe when we get in a self-critical mode or we wake up in the middle of the night and there's distress, we can call on metta. Metta, among other things, is an amazing antidote to distress. It can really be used at moments, uh, moments of distress. You know, originally metta was designed by the Buddha as an antidote to fear. Fear and anxiety, it really it has that calming effect. And I just wanted to um, kind of complete the sense of um, what some aspects of what leading from the heart means by saying that leading from the heart doesn't mean being overly nice. This is important. I've been reflecting for maybe five years on what I like to call tough metta. You know, and when, when we look to the text of the Buddha, presumably very loving, but often very firm. So there's a quality of our metta which doesn't have to be just nice, you know, roll over me, I'll do whatever you want, but really can be combined with a sense of uh, firmness. And uh, King used to talk about that a lot. He talked about how, how um, love was something strong, you know, there, there was a passage which I found where he says, when I talk about love, I'm not talking about emotional bosh. <laughs> I'm talking about something that can be strong and even demanding. So that firmness. So it's good to remember that, that this uh, quality of leading with the heart can be firm, whatever, set boundaries, do what we need to do, uh, but, but come from the heart. You know, we can choose... Uh, not to relate to someone and still not put that person out of our hearts. Not easy. A second aspect of what develops in metta is what we can call concentration, you know, which is the translation of the word samadhi in the uh, Pali language and probably not a great translation because it kind of makes us think, what, of concentrated orange juice, or um, we've, we've talked about this. That it, and actually, uh, the, the roots of the word samadhi, uh, particularly the, the S-A-M in samadhi, is linked with words that have to do with bringing together or gathering, or kind of like it's related to the word summary, actually. It's an uh, Indo-European language, so it's related to that. And it, so it probably, a uh, better translation for samadhi would be unification of mind, bringing together the different, the different parts of the mind. 
And so we, in our practice, we we do the we, we do this repetition of the phrases, which is really about only doing one thing, which is really what concentration practice is. That it's uh, this. I actually have something from one of the old texts from the Vasudhimagga. It says. Samadhi is the profitable unification of the mind. It is the centering of consciousness, mind, and heart evenly and appropriately on a single object, undistracted and unscattered. So that unification of mind, focusing on a single object, single object, that's our phrases. We keep coming back to that. And there's both a, a challenge, but there's also kind of a relief in just doing one thing. Have you felt that? Just doing, you don't have to think out this too much, right? It's just phrase one, phrase two, phrase three, phrase four, 16 or 18 hours a day. That's it. You know, and there, there, again, there are challenges with that, which I'll come to in a moment, but there's also a release and a relief, and it can be um, very calming and unifying to, to do that. In the long run, concentration practice is like that. There's a beautiful line from Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And we may feel that from, from this practice. There's a kind of unification. A Russian Orthodox teacher from the 19th century, um, Theophane said, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. And so we continually come back. We continually come back. And as we practice and unify the mind in this way, there's a calm that develops that Sylvia was mentioning. There can be ease and relaxation uh, more in the body and the heart and the mind, a peace, a well-being, a contentment. These are some of the fruits of concentration. Stillness, there can be bliss and rapture that develops in the body and in our being. Very powerful effects possible with concentration and uh, possible through the metta practice. We can move into deeper states of what are called absorption or jhana states with metta practice, with the repetition. You know, a key is especially that we focus more and more on the feeling of metta, not so much on the phrases. And one thing that, that for me has been fairly remarkable about doing metta practice in retreat context is that after a while, the words start to... Um, go beneath the discursive level of consciousness. Some of you may have noticed this. There's something that happens. You know, I was reflecting on this because I was thinking about this um, line of a, a poem from Rumi where he says, uh, close the language door and open the love door. <laughs> Do you know that one? <laughs> close the language door and open the love door. I think, well, what are we doing here? We're not we're not exactly closing the language door, we're using language. We're using language to open the love uh, door. 
But then I was reflecting on it, I was thinking, well, maybe what he means is that we close the usual chattering discursive uh, language door. And that can open the love door, so to speak. And I think that's what it is because it can be remarkable when we go deeper with the metta, how the phrases become almost like background. And we can focus on the sense of the heart and there's a way in which the phrases are not operating at the discursive level. At first they are. We have to work with that, but they can, they can move so that it's a different, almost a different aspect of the mind that's working. So I was also reflecting on um, concentration practice because uh, I was actually on retreat for two weeks and finished the day before our retreat began and I was doing entirely concentration practice for two weeks. And you know, then took an airplane, came here, showed up, met my colleagues, and here we go. And, but I was reflecting on, on the retreat because in terms of what are some ways to uh, have what Sylvia was referring to, wise effort in meta practice. How do we practice wisely with concentration practice? And I was reflecting on that even to the point where it um, a, a few times diminished my concentration <laughs> on the retreat. But I wanted to, I wanted to mention uh, some of those ways of practicing with the phrases that really support uh, metta as concentration practice. A first way is this importance of keep coming back, you know, this persistence, this patience of keep coming back, but do so in a relaxed way. The essence of deepening and concentration is relaxation. And so we have to somehow have that balance of persistence, but ease. Not easy, right? But it's something to to think about, and I'll unpack a little more what that, what that means. But we can think of that, um, that continual return, but having that sense of ease and not pushing too hard, really. Ultimately, it's, it's really a sense of, uh, can be that sense I mentioned before, of we, we uh, do our practice and then we let things be as they are. That's one way that we, we do that. We say the phrases, we let it be what it is. We don't anguish about what's happening. It's, it's this almost paradoxical balance of very strong committed effort with a total letting go of what happens. Don't try to think about it too much. It actually um, has paradox in it and it doesn't make total logical sense. But it's that strong Um, strong effort and then the letting go. That's one way it gets expressed. Another way it gets expressed is in knowing how to balance the effort that's often important at the beginning of keep coming back to the phrases with letting the effort be more and more easeful. And And after a while, more we ride the metta energy. We don't even have to keep pushing so much. So it's important to be sensitive about when to expend energy and when to more pull back and let it go. It's already happening. That's, that's important as well. 
Another aspect that is important to reflect on is the mysterious nature of how concentration develops. It is mysterious. And, um, you know, I think I've heard in some of the talks with people how we can be in one moment feel everything is dry and 15 minutes later can have a real sense of warmth. You know, it's mysterious, you know. And so the practical lesson that I would take from that it could be phrased as stay with it. Have that patience. Stay with it. You don't know what's around the corner. You know, it, you may be, have a dry spell. You stay with it, something may open up. It may also not open up. <laughs> but, but that quality of staying with it is really the essence or really at the, at the core of doing this practice. Another aspect which I was reflecting on um, during uh, parts of the retreat was uh, there is a certain initial effort that just gets things going, which we may still be in the midst of. This is just the second full day. And at a certain point, we are helped by not indulging too much in the interesting thoughts. Or sometimes they're interesting thoughts, sometimes they are self-tormenting thoughts, right? And there's a, there's a place for just saying, um, I don't need to do this anymore, or I don't need to indulge, or I don't need to go there. Do you know what I'm talking about? The sense of the repetitive thoughts, and we, get, we go down a certain route, right? And it's kind of predictable. We sit here and maybe it's to think about something unresolved in my life for the 43rd time. <laughs> or to uh, just go down a familiar route. It could be, again, it could be negative, could be positive. And there can, there's a place, and it's tricky because we don't want to really come at this from a self-judgmental place. There's a place for just saying, enough, I'm going to just really be with the practice and not go there. And that's valuable to do. I was, I was exploring that in my own practice in these last weeks. And for me, it was, it was helped. I was, it was interesting. There was, a, there was a way that I was helped by... Um, actually, I would summon image, an image, uh, almost like a fire and of a tiger. I'm not suggesting you do this. But I, I had a... I don't know. I don't want to get into some history, but... Uh, in, in some past inner work, I had made a lot of use of the, the um, image of the tiger, actually. And I also would, would do things which just sort of uh, kind of brought back the immediacy of being here. I, sometimes I would clap like that, just clap. Or there's a Tibetan technique in which you say, pay, really quickly. Some of you probably know that. And I, so, I, so when I was uh, noticing thoughts come, I would just go, some, not, you know, if I was by myself, I'd do that. If it was in a hall, I would just go, I would clap in my mind's eye. <laughs> you know? And I remember, I remember one time, I, you know, I was, um, I had noticed some thoughts, or I, I, I had noticed thoughts of how interesting it was to do this method of just summoning this energy to go into... Um, you know, just to let go of having to go to this particular repetitive thought. And, and I said, that's such a cool method. And I, and I 
Um, I think I did what I had, was doing. And then the thought came again, and I thought, this would be really good to talk about at the meta retreat. <laughs> and I said, and I said, wait a second, didn't you just do your invocation not to go with these extra thoughts? I said, yes, but this is a good one. <laughs> True confession. <laughs> so, um, kind of interesting. So, we, we can work in that way, because working with repetitive thoughts is a really big uh, part of, of the concentration practice. And we can also work with what many of you know from the Vipassana practice as the so-called hindrances, or the, the um, uh, I think many of us prefer a different translation. I think literally it would be, it would be difficult energies. And Probably most of you remember these difficult energies that are sometimes called some kind of compulsive wanting or desire, a kind of more compulsive aversion or pushing away of what's happening, uh, sloth and torpor or sleepiness, fogginess. Uh, the fourth is restlessness and the fifth is doubt. And um, these come up in metta practice, each of them. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how they appear and how to work with them because it's important. Um, so I think we know sleepiness is common just on the beginning of retreats. Most of you, almost everyone here has done retreats before, so you know that. Has anyone experienced sleepiness today or yesterday? <laughs> okay. And so that is, is very, very common. There can be a kind of fogginess or uh, the sloth and torpor can take the shape sometimes of what we sometimes call meta muddles in which our phrases come out wrong. <laughs> Has anyone experienced those? They're, they're very humorous. I, I, I did, a, about six years ago, I did a five-week meta retreat, and I collected my meta models. You know, one of my favorites was, my, my first phrase that I use is, may I be happy and contented. And this time, you know, I remember one time it came out was, may I be happy and cemented. <laughs> you know, I, I had kind of visions of, Mafia burials in New Jersey or something, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, and another one, one of my phrases is, may I, my last one is, may I be free and live with ease. And this appeared as, may I be free and live with lice. <laughs> you know, so these are signs that some, you know, maybe some fogginess might be there in the mind. Or um, another one was, uh, May I be safe and free from home. <laughs> Sally Clough Armstrong, who teaches Metta also, she, she had one where he, she said, may I be free of something. <laughs> she, she couldn't, she, in, in mid-Metta phrase, she, she blanked on what she was supposed to be free from. <laughs> so um, at the end of the retreat, we'll have a, a collection and a contest for the best Metta model. <laughs> So these happen, we get foggy, and um, you know, what, do, what do we do? And sometimes also we get sleepy because there can sometimes be more concentration than energy. You know, we sometimes call this sinking mind, where there's more concentration than energy, and it feels foggy and dreamlike and actually often quite pleasant. So we can think, oh, I'm really entering the meditation zone. But it's actually more um, um, diluted, actually, sorry. And so what do we do when we um, have some of these happen? You know, I think, again, many of us are familiar 
you know, if we, if we have that imbalance of more concentration than energy, we do things which rouse the energy. We can uh, sometimes walk vigorously. We can sometimes stand up. We can um, uh, do yoga that helps us to bring that energy into the body. So it's something to ask. If, if there is sleepiness, we can ask, is there that imbalance of concentration and energy? Uh, we can, in general... Uh, Sometimes it's helpful to open the eyes. You know, we open the eyes, there's more energy. Stand up, take deep breaths, um, take more walks. Um, one practice which is recommended if we're sleepy is uh, reflect on your own death. <laughs> so <laughs> use that if you, if you see fit. So, and we, you know, we, we can work with the, uh, the other hindrances, so-called, we can work with in different ways. In mindfulness, we would typically be mindful and investigate them. With metta practice, the general guideline for working with mind states is that if they are passing moderate level, we don't really give them attention. We just come back to the phrases. It's only when they're there for a long time and a lot of strength that we might actually work with mindfulness. So we might, um, we might work with these passing thoughts and desires just by noticing them and then coming back, to the, coming back to the phrases. And I think I'll probably say a little bit more about that in, in a while. You know, if we're, if we're restless, sometimes when we're restless, there's an imbalance of more energy and less concentration. So then we can do things which build the concentration. Sometimes we could... Uh, um, just uh, do some focused work with the breath, count breaths, and so forth. So those are hopefully some uh, suggestions that might be helpful for the concentration practice. The third theme I wanted to talk about is very much related. It's that when we do metta practice, we really engage in this um, magical journey of purification. And I'm thinking about purification in two ways. One of them is we incline towards what we might call the more pure aspects of ourselves. The qualities of that open heart, our goodness, our really our beautiful qualities. And in the, in the second sense of purification is that we encounter that which stands in the way of metta. You know, that which is, you know, um, hesitate to say impure, but it really, we can use that metaphor in that way. We are purified of all that is non-meta. You know, I remember Trudy Goodman used the phrase anti-meta forces. <laughs> and we, we purify in that sense. And if we don't want to use the word purification, because it has a lot of connotations, and I don't think it's helpful to think about impure parts of ourselves, because probably most of our difficult places, you know, maybe our wounded places, our critical voices, they actually can be traced to um, parts of ourselves which are actually wanting our own happiness. You know, you know that um, having done personally a lot of work in teaching with the judgmental mind, I know that at its core, it's a kind of defense mechanism to pre- pre- prevent us from feeling pain. It has a protective measure. And so when we notice the judgmental mind, we can treat it with metta. And actually, as we go deeper, we can have a sense sometimes 
that it's actually a part that originally had a part of a motive to do good things for us. But if you want to use other language, you can talk about, um, as Sylvia was suggesting this morning, that metta practice is uh, marinating. If you prefer that, marinating with metta, right? Marinate every, every part of ourselves with metta. So we, on, on the one hand, we incline towards what's beautiful in ourselves. You know, there's a, a line that I like a lot from Picasso where he says, art washes away the dust of the soul. And metta does something like that. It washes away some of the parts of ourselves which are ready to go, which, which um, impede our own radiance. And so we, we work with the, also with what stands in the way of metta. We work with the repetitive thoughts. We work with the judgmental mind. Very, very common on metta retreats. And it's very interesting that, I think it's been our experience, that um, on metta retreats, there often is more stirred up than on Vipassana retreats. There's a lot stirred up. One person was saying today, I noticed that my mind is a lot wilder than on uh, Vipassana retreats. But certainly we've noticed that in metta retreats. It's, there's a, partly it's the concentration, but a lot gets stirred up. People have a lot of uh, intense dreams. Has anyone had intense dreams here? Don't worry about them. <laughs> yeah, we can have, you can have intense dreams in which you're an axe murderer, and it's okay. You don't have to interpret the dream as saying, I was going to... Uh, I almost was going to have a really bad pun come out, which wasn't intentional. I was going to say, you're not cut out for meta. <laughs> <laughs> but we may, you know, but I've had people at meta retreats come and say, I had this awful violent dream and I'm fearing that it says something about my deep nature. You know, so just to know that this is very, very common and it's okay and not to overinterpret, probably not to interpret much at all is helpful, you know. And so we, we, we have a chance to hear the old voices, you know, we, the, some of the old wounds surface, the judgments, the repetitive thoughts, the, the old patterns, and we get to notice them. You know, in the, in the Vasudhimaga, the text that is the compiling of the practices, that's the basis for um, a lot of the method of metta, it says that metta practice is the burning up of defilements, that it occurs in, in that process, you know. And we, we can notice that purification happening. We can notice sometimes our bodies softening. We can notice sometimes some of the heart becomes, area becomes more tender. Sometimes we feel constriction around the heart and we can really feel that and notice that a lot, you know. So we... Um, we work with all these thoughts, we work with the, we work with the desires, we work with that, and in that process something gets purified, something gets, um, gets worked through, something gets uh, uh, let go of, you know, and so we have to have that really, that persistence just to keep coming back. We notice, and it's not so much that we do 
inquiry or investigation with the difficult states, but we really acknowledge them. And if they're just coming and going, we can come back to the metta. Or we, we can do metta towards the patterns. If we have persistent patterns, we can do metta towards them. So I want to just finish by talking about this last quality of metta practice, which is that there's a way in which in metta practice there can be, and I think it's important actually for our times, for our metta practice to unify our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And that metta practice is this unification in that way as well. You know, and we've, we've explored a lot how metta practice is connected with um, uh, vipassana, how when we're doing metta practice, necessarily we notice things. There's mindfulness, that they're almost like uh, two um, sides of the same hand. You know, I think that was a metaphor that Achan Cha used once, the teacher of Jack Kornfield and, and uh, Achan Semedo. Um, so we necessarily, in doing metta, we see a lot. We develop, we develop mindfulness. We notice this. And we also develop in the concentration and in the open heart. And I think in the long run, we want to develop a kind of integration of the wisdom aspect with the heart aspect. We could call this the cultivation of the wise heart or the heartfelt wisdom, you know, that that's really what we're looking for, that, that quality by which the heart and the mind come together. You know, and I think it's, we do this individually, it's a deep healing necessary for our culture, you know, in which the mind is getting at times very disconnected from, from the heart. So very, very important. And there's one other piece which isn't really in the classical teachings, but very important for us and important in my own practice, which is to have the metta practice be embodied. So it's not just to connect the wisdom in the heart or the mindfulness and the wisdom in the heart, but also to ground that in the body and to have our metta practice be embodied, especially important in a more cerebral culture because many of us have very active minds. Does anyone have an active mind here? <laughs> many, of us, many of us have active minds and Connecting with the body, very, very crucial, I think, in our long-term practice, but also in our meta-practice. And so we can do that in ways we've talked about. We can connect the metta with uh, feeling sensations in the body as we do the practice. Or, like Sylvia was saying this morning, to have a sense of how each phrase feels and resonates in the body. These can be ways to really ground the... um, ground the metta in the body. There's a beautiful uh, teaching that I got from a a Vietnamese friend uh, that in Vietnam, starting in the 1930s, they felt a need to shift from the traditional model, Buddhist model, of talking about wisdom and compassion as the core of the teachings. And they said, we want to add wisdom to wisdom and, com- and compassion, we want to add courage. Some of you who know French know courage is connected to the heart and it's also connected to action and the body, I think. And so for me, this was a teaching of the importance of connecting the heart, the mind, wisdom, and the body. So I just want to close 
by giving two readings from, I think, from people who are expressing the possibility of where this practice leads, that is, towards that radiant, luminous heart. Uh, The first is from the Buddha, and the second is from Dr. King. So I'll just close with these two readings. Talking about the quality of heart and mind linked with metta, the Buddha said, the mind and heart are brightly shining, but they are defiled by defilements. As we practice more, particularly with metta, it's said in the text that the liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon, this brightly shining quality of our hearts. And the second passage is from Dr. King talking about his own inclination to have love be the center, to have something like our meta practice be at the center. And as you listen to this, and I think that it has, it ha- he uses the, the phrase God, and you can, if you want to, you can do your translation. You can, if you want, if it's helpful to you to translate God into uh, nature of being or true nature, feel free to do that. And you also hear in this the the focus on intention right at the beginning. I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. Because John was right, God is love. He who hates does not know God. But he who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. He who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. Let's just sit for a moment together. Liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines and glows and radiates, said the Buddha. Dr. King, one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality.
So thank you for your kind attention.